Welcome to Flyline Podcast, where we enjoy the interesting stories behind the legendary guides and fishing luminaries connected to Maine fishing. I'm Michael Jones. Today, we'll be talking with our special guest, Randy Spencer. Randy is not only a legendary guide, but also a Maine fly fishing legend. Randy Spencer guides fishermen on the Canadian border waters of Down East Maine. Randy is an author, a songwriter, a voiceover artist, and a columnist and is affectionately known as the Singing Main Guy. Randy has written and published three award-winning books. He has recorded the soundtracks for two documentary films. Portland Magazine has named Randy as one of the 10 most intriguing people in Maine. Yankee Magazine included him as one of the 25 people you need to meet most. He's been the subject of features on CBS Sunday Morning, Boston Channel 5's Chronicle, The Wall Street Journal, and ESPN2. Randy and his wife Shelley, with their two English Springer Spaniels, divide their time between Grand Lake Stream and Holden, Maine. Welcome, Randy. Oh, thanks for having me. Randy, it's quite an honor. You, you bring quite a legacy. Everyone in the guiding community knows you, and I am just ashamed to say that you and I have never met. Well, I always say Maine is the biggest small community in the world, so it, it's, it would be inevitable for it to happen eventually. I agree completely. So, Randy, just for the audience's sake, just bring us back in time to kind of where you grew up and what brought you to Maine. Well, I grew up in Manchester, Connecticut, and my family had a camp in Sebago area. So I was brought there from birth um, all the way through high school and summers. And that, I guess, got into my system enough so that right out of college, I took a job at a wilderness canoe camp in Grand Lake Stream, Maine, and that that got me into that area, and so I just, uh, you know, I really became invested in the area, and eventually had a camp there, and eventually moved there, and had a place uh, in the village as well. How many seasons of guiding uh, in the summer did it take before you decided to try to bridge to uh, winter over there? Oh, not many. Uh, as a matter of fact, I was... I was pretty much wintering over there from the start. I started guiding full-time in the late 90s. I had gone to Eagle Lodge Guiding School, uh, owned and operated by John and Tammy Rogers. And, and so by the time I started guiding, it was still in the 90s, but uh, I, was, I was moving full-time into Grand Lake Stream at that point. Yeah, and in, in your earliest trips, what were they like? Were you doing just canoe tours, or were you incorporating fly fishing at that time, or how did it all, all evolve for you? Oh, they were full-fledged uh, fishing guiding trips, and, you know, it's like with anyone starting out, you introduce yourself to all of the lodge owners and, you know, try to make yourself as as visible and as available as possible, so... It, at the start, that's what I was doing just all the time and trying to, you know, get my name out there and, and get bookings. Yeah, that's that's actually kind of how I started, too. I started working with fly shops rather than lodges. And eventually, over time, I noticed that people were calling me directly. And I'm sure that probably happened for you as well. Yeah, that was the, uh, the transition that I began to make about, I want to say, four to five years in. Um, and the, that transition is is from a dependent guide, if you will, to an independent guide. Um, and by dependent guide, I mean you are basically waiting for the phone to ring. You're waiting for a lodge owner to call you. They have a client. Um, they need a guide. And that's kind of the way it starts for uh, most people. And it's the way it still is for a lot of people. But I wanted to transition into... Um, developing my own clientele. And so by that time, using website um, promotions uh, of, of any kind, my columns, uh, advertising. And so I had begun that process about four to five years in. Yeah, when I, when I first started guiding, I worked with a local fly shop, and then I, I hitched my cart to, to Danny Legere at the Main Guide Fly Shop. And it was there that I learned about the importance of calling back anyone that's interested in you have 12 to 24 hours 
the iron is hot and you have to strike. If you get an inquiry, you've got to try to get that to a booking as fast as possible. Don't you agree with that? Yes. Yes, I do. Yeah, and I was told by them that, you know, oh, no, you know, I, I called, but my brother's got a wedding or my son can't do it now or whatever. But if you if you get them to book early, then everyone remains committed. And I found that that was a key to bridging the gap from being a dependent guide to an independent guide. And I've never heard that term. I love it. I'm going to steal that from you, Randy, if you don't mind. Well, you know, and these days um, I'm trying to do what was done for me. In those earliest years, I did have mentors and especially one who was from the previous generation of guides. Sonny Sprague was his name. And I went with him and I, and I learned the ropes from him, saw how it all happened. And that was the way it was done in those days. It was kind of, it was sort of an unspoken journeymanship or apprenticeship, if, if you will. And, and so now I'm, you know, of that generation, I'm of that age, and we have some new guides coming along. And in, in my uh, tr attempts to mentor younger guides, I encourage them to eventually develop their own clientele. Because if you're, if you're attached to lodges only, then your fortunes are, you know, linked to theirs. It, it's better in the long run to, and it's also safer, I think, to, to build your own business. And th that's going to serve you for the future much better than being dependent on a lodge or on lodges. I agree wholeheartedly. And, and part of that I've witnessed uh, firsthand is, you know, lodge owners change, lodge managers change, um, personalities change. And if you're working for them, you have to kind of survive the tide of change. And if you're working for yourself, you don't. Uh, you're you really just you're the master of your own domain with your clients and you know some clients you're going to keep uh, because they just really enjoy you alone. So Randy, what is the guiding season like in Grand Lake Stream area? It's uh, to take me from springtime to fall. Well, um, the things that change throughout the season from from ice out until uh, the end of general law fishing mainly are the target species and the clothing and maybe the, the means by which you are um, uh, chasing whichever quarry it might be. So in our area, in the spring, it tends to be trout and salmon. And it can be either uh, brook trout and landlocked salmon or lake trout or togue as we call them and landlocked salmon. The water is cold. Um, these species are up in the water column near the surface so you can you can use fly rods you can use flies and it's it's the most fun that way and of course the stream opens april 1st and so but the guiding doesn't really get going on the stream until may and then continues through uh the first half of june and then during the heat of summer and kind of family vacation time the target species switches to smallmouth bass. And a lot of people have learned, a lot of people who used to look down their nose at uh, smallmouth bass because they were, let's say, trout or salmon purists, um, learned their lesson that this is an amazing game fish. And then things switch back when the, when the lakes turn over and the temperatures cool down, the fish come back up top and it switches back to salmon and, and lake trout, although you can continue to catch smallmouth bass in the late season, which is when they are the largest and they're, they are feeding voraciously because their, their time is limited and they know it. When the water temperatures get down below 50, they go into a kind of dormancy and that's coming quickly in late September. So the fishing can be amazing for smallmouth bass at that time absolutely and we've had days in the in the fall uh, for smallmouth fishing here on the, um, on the west side of maine where any kind of a small rise in temperature on a cold day can just uh can uh, kick off a, a feeding frenzy and that really can turn a day from uh, kind of slow into everything all at once so same thing here with uh with uh fishing uh grand lake stream area 
what's the favorite kind of streamer pattern for that you go to, Randy, when you're out with your clients? If you're going to be casting, retrieving, or trolling, or anything like that, just for we're talking going back to the trout and the salmon in the spring. Okay, I had to go through a little bit of a. Am I going to give this up here or not? Well, sure. Why you not? don't have to. You my don't two, have to. My two favorite flies are the Governor Aiken and the yeah. Red Ghost. Yeah. I like it. I, I like the Red Ghost a lot. I also like the Governor Aiken. That's a good one. We like the Magog smelt here, and naturally, because of the Rangeley region, everyone wants to fish a Grey Ghost. So, um, and I think the Governor Aiken was a, a brilliant uh, mimicking of. Uh, it's a smelt imitation um, without equal, in my view. And do you think that it mimics the smelts that are uh, indigenous to that area, or do you think it's just a broad, successful smelt pattern? I do, and the, the smelts that were indigenous to West Grand Lake were rainbow smelts, and they were uh, pin smelts, yeah. not the kind of jack smelts that you might see in lakes close to you there in Sebago and Long Lake and Peabody, where I grew up. Uh, but then starting in later in the 80s, there was uh, a stocking of jack smelts into West Grand Lake. And so now there is a population of jack smelts, but they haven't taken hold to the, to the extent that they're exceeding the pin smelts. I got it. As I uh, mentioned in the uh, introduction, Randy, you are known as the uh, singing main guide. Uh, what was the first song you wrote that's connected to guiding? Do you recall? I sure do. It's an it's easy to recall because one of the old uh, guides in town from that previous generation of guides, while I was working for that canoe camp as an outfitter, made the suggestion to me that there really should be a song about the the black flies of Maine, and it just so happened that that year it was the worst outbreak outbreak of black flies in something like twenty five years. I mean, they just made hash of everybody that that year and so uh that idea kind of you know took hold and i wrote this song about black flies and released it as almost as a joke but certainly as a novelty song as in those days on vinyl a 45 rpm record and to no one's surprise more than me this thing went to number one in northern New England and eastern Canada and other, certain other pockets in New England states uh, for six weeks. And I actually had to go on the road and chase this thing around and play uh, hockey rinks and uh, a lot of uh, strange places. But that was the first song. Yeah, and we've actually, we, we listened to it and we love it. It's got a great, great sound, a great beat. It's Your voice is great on it. And um, you know, where do the ideas come from? If you're, if you're, do you, do you think of the name of a song and then you write it, or do you have something going on in the guitar? Tell us about your, your writing process because uh, I'm interested to know about that. Well, a, a place like Grand Lake Stream is just fertile ground for ideas for songwriting, and I, I love nothing more than to go to my camp, and and alone, and <laughs> with a guitar, and just let those lyrics and melodies happen. And many times they happen simultaneously for me. But besides the, the, the natural beauty and the, and the things along those lines to write about and black flies, uh, it's the people and these colorful, wonderful, unique people. And so a lot of my songs had to do with that, those kind of subjects. Yeah, I, it makes perfect sense. Um, and kind of related to singing, you do voiceover work, which is really unique for a main guide. How, tell us about the genesis of that. Did someone reach out to you and say, hey, Randy, we really like the sound of your voice. Can you, can you do something for us? Or was it something that you felt you wanted to pitch on your own? Well, it happened before guiding. I mean, guiding was a late-in-life uh, career change for me. I had a whole career in advertising before that. And, I mean, I, I used to commute to Manhattan and produce commercials for for corporations and for companies and in those days there was a period of time early for seven years when I was uh, George Plimpton's producer and he would be uh, if you remember George Plimpton he was kind of the guy who did everything he in the book that really brought him out and, and kind of into fame was called Paper Lion 
and he he had done everything. He had played a season with the Detroit Lions. He had boxed Archie Moore. He had been all over the world and and done so many things. And and he became a really sought after spokesperson for many products and many companies and companies that I was doing work for wanted that voice, wanted George Plimpton. So I would go to New York and produce George on these commercials. And in seven years, I was able to, uh, whether he knew it or not, use George as a, a teacher and a mentor. So I, I began, I was writing jingles all those years and I began to do the voiceovers on them as well and then became the spokesperson for a lot of different companies myself. And, and that continued even after I moved to Grand Lake Stream. One of the first things I did was build a recording studio there. And I kept do, doing you know, voiceovers for these clients. I understand you had a studio set up in your place in Grand Lake Stream before you had plumbing. That's right. Yeah, that's that's a test. That's a testimony to your dedication to your craft for sure. <laughs> With a wife and family, the the plumbing wasn't long in coming. Believe me. And absolutely, and you know you're such a multifaceted person. Your resume is just decorated. Uh, the other thing that you're well known for is is your writing. Um, tell us about some of the titles of your books and just a little bit about which each one of the titles is the book is about for, based on the title. Well, by the time the first book, uh, Where Cool Waters Flow, was published, I had been a columnist for at least 12 years. Um, first in a, in a kind of tabloid called the Down East Times, and then started writing for the Northwood Sporting Journal, and was also doing um, op-eds and freelance work during that time. So I was learning uh, about deadlines and, and learning about time time pressure and the things you, you know, you have to know if you're going to actually produce and make some kind of a living from your writing. And so then I, I decided to try to tackle a book and just, you know, stayed after it. And it, it took four years really to write my first book. They're taking less time these days, but I had a lot to learn writing that first book. And it, it was really a book about my guiding experiences up to that point. I had, by that time, I had been guiding full-time for 12 years. And so I had, there was a lot of great stories. I mean, there's nothing like guiding for meeting the most interesting people you've ever met and for having these one-off experiences that in some cases would seem impossible, but it's that too is really a fertile area for gathering stories. I I have a little bit to share on that too when it comes to just the memorable clients. You know, the, we, as guides, we meet a lot of lawyers and doctors and business people and bankers and everything. But I can tell you that one of the best days I ever had floating a river was with two grave diggers from Trenton, Maine. Wow! They were just the most. They were salt of the earth. They wanted to carry the coolers, help load the gear. Mike, what can we do to help? And they were so gracious. And you could tell they someone had given them the trip as a gift. And at the end of the day, the guy reaches into his pocket and pulls out an old worn-out Leatherman tool and tries to give it to me as a tip. And he says, Mike, I, we don't have any money to give you a tip, but you did such a good job. We wanted to give you something. And I just, no, you guys, you hang on to your Leatherman tool. It, the pleasure was all mine, and, it did, and it's really a testimony because I still remember these guys to this day. It's great. So the quilt of who we meet that makes up who we meet as, as guys, it's just very, very different from day in to day out. Um, yeah, the, um, but, the, the humor in that that occurs to me right off the bat, Michael, is if they you know, were anxious to give you their business cards when they left. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, no, I didn't want the business card about the grave digger, no. Absolutely. So um, I think we're actually at a pretty good place to take a short break, Randy, and then um, we'll come back and we'll uh, take on a couple of other really interesting topics that I know our listeners will enjoy. For this Flyline flashback, we reference the history of fly rod making by Lou Zambello. He writes, 
During the heyday of whaling in the 17th century, baleen became the material of choice for rod tips because of its lighter weight and flexibility. Baleen is found in the mouths of filter-feeding whales. It wasn't until the mid-1700s that rod makers manufactured a product specifically for fly fishing with limber materials such as ash or willow. Trout rods measured 12 feet, while salmon rods frequently exceeded 17 feet. Americans began building their own rods from Greenheart and Lancewood imported from Britain. Everything changed when the first bamboo canes arrived from the Far East. The first split cane rods were manufactured in England in 1851 using cane strips glued together, but the results were crude. Bangor, Maine's own Hiram Leonard perfected the technique for building split cane rods and is considered the father of bamboo rods. He invented a machine that beveled the bamboo strip edges to make a more uniformly tapered rod in much less time. He also switched from India's Calcutta cane to China's Tonkin cane, which was more uniform and durable. By 1876, the H. Leonard Rod Company was producing 200 rods a year with only 11 employees. And now let's return to the second part of our show. Well, welcome back, listeners. Again, we're uh, visiting today with Randy Spencer from Grand Lake Stream. And Randy, earlier in the um, interview and conversation, uh, you were talking about guiding uh, down east, uh, I'm sorry, in uh, Grand Lake Stream area. And in you were working early in the 90s. Were there any Native American guides still working at that time? And tell me what your, your earliest memories were. Right. I just wanted to correct that it was the late 90s when I started guiding full time. And, and certainly... There were still Passamaquoddy guides working with us um, day in and day out. And that number has diminished over time, but there, is, there are still Passamaquoddy guides. And, and one in particular, one of my best friends that I guide with constantly. And, and I'm, I feel extremely fortunate that that's the case. Yeah. And um, how many, if you had to count, how many do you think are still carrying a guide's license today? Oh, that would be hard to say because a lot of people carry guides licenses and and were guiding but have kind of stepped back either because of age or possibly illness or other issues. Um, it, it, it's just as hard to say on, on the non-native side how many uh, are carrying guides licenses. There are probably uh, something like 30 maybe 33 working guides uh, in Grand Lake Stream. Yeah, yeah, so yeah, amazing. Um, and one more thing I want to ask you about your writing. We talked about your first book. You've had other books as well, and is there anything currently in the works? The way that works, first I'll go back, and, and you asked about the, uh, the three books, the first one, Where Cool Waters Flow. Um, uh, guiding experiences up to that point, um, second book, Wide and Deep, more personal. For example, attempting to save a, a life, a, a drowning fly fisherman in Grand Lake Stream. And then the whole advent of the local land trust and the land management company that they ended up in a relationship with. And that land management company, uh, kind of, you know, the old story. Those of us who were leasing uh, camp lots uh, were given an ultimatum. It was basically buy it or lose it. And so that whole history is told in, in the wide and deep book. Uh, and also a, a lot more about the interesting people in, in the region and experiences. And then the third book written on water is more about these the, the characters that I am concerned about. We're losing some of our unique characters and it's it's sort of not even becoming okay for there to be these really esoteric characters um <laughs> too much homogeneity if you will uh so and the mysteries and this is an area full of mysteries and j just to you know mention the ufo sightings uh, and things that can't be explained and then the unique characters and a, a one character that whose lifelong ambition was to ride a moose and so, again, it's, it's really fertile ground for this kind of material, and Written on Water explores that further. 
and also tries to get into recording some of the rich oral history of the region. So much of these stories and poems are just passed down orally. And I, I get concerned sometimes that it would be lost in the digital age. And so Written on Water was an attempt to record as much of that as I could. Very entertaining. And just in hearing you just talk talk about your books and your interests, Randy, it, it reminds me that, you know, I never wanted this podcast to be about two white guys talking about how to catch a fish because <laughs> I, I, I think there's an... I think there's enough of that out there that um, I actually got the idea to do the podcast by turning off a podcast that was just that, two white guys talking about how to catch a fish. And your books don't sound like, uh, this is how I build my leader, and this is where I fish in the water column, and this is the best fly to use when uh, a rainbow is on, the, you know, it sounds to me more like you're interested in the people. Yeah, I, I, I've heard this from um, readers that that my my books are just barely about fishing that they seem to be more as you say about the people and about the experiences and the uniqueness of this the canadian border waters where i work and and the people there the experiences there so yeah i i guess i have to agree they're just barely about fishing yeah and, and to me that's at least for me that's more entertaining than talking about how to catch fish um, Randy, I'd like to jump back. You made a really interesting comment that needs to be revisited, and that is you talked about saving a drowning fisherman. Can you kind of give us the story about how that happened and what your involvement was? Well, it's a, it's a, it's a difficult story in that it, it began um, so innocuously. It was really at the end of a guided fishing day. I had gotten home. I lived uh, practically on the stream itself, Grand Lake Stream. And so I was putting things away and getting ready for the next day and began to hear something sh being shouted from the stream. Not unusual. I mean, when someone gets a nice salmon jumping, you'll, you'll hear caterwauling and screaming and yelling uh, all the time. And, but this was just one word shouted. And, and so I stopped what I was doing and walked a little closer until I could discern what was being shouted and it was help. And so I just responded, just dropped everything and ran towards the stream to see what was going on. And it was uh, two fly fishermen, one standing behind another in deep water, holding the other man up by his armpits. He had his, his hands under his armpits and around his chest, and he was holding him up. And this man looked lifeless. And uh, about the same time as I got to the stream, another guy from upstream had heard the same shout, jumped in. We both jumped into the stream and just started running toward these two fellows and got there at the same time. And and helped relieve the one fisherman who was holding the man up. And we got this, uh, this fly fisherman to shore. He was unconscious and we got him up on the bank and began CPR and never stopped for 45 minutes, by which time EMTs had been called and, and they showed up and we weren't a able to save this man. Um, it, since that time, they, I've learned a lot about it and wrote about it in Wide and Deep, the second book. Uh, they were lifelong friends, grew up in Quincy, Massachusetts, went to the same high school, joined the service out of high school, went to Vietnam at the same time, got out at the same time, came back to Quincy and both joined the Quincy Fire Department. And, and had whole careers, both of them, with the fire department in Quincy, Mass, and retired, and they were fishing buddies all that time, and they always came to Grand Lake Stream, Maine, and that was where uh, Tyke passed away while he was fly fishing Grand Lake Stream. His nickname was Tyke. Thank you so much for sharing that, Randy. Quite welcome. Yeah, so... Um 
Randy, the way that I first heard your name was actually in the news. And there was this this thing that happened back in the day for our listeners. This was like 15 years ago, Randy, uh, when we had the issue with the warden service. Do you want to talk about oh, that? Oh. Wow. A uh, long time ago. Um, well, next year, it will be 20 years. 20 years. Okay. I stand corrected. That, was, that tells me how old I'm getting. Um <laughs> But the, the story, I think, made the New York Times. Uh, one of my clients from out of state sent me the story back in the day when you'd actually mail each other cutouts of articles and said, do you know this guy? And I didn't. And I started to research you and I thought, man, this guy is decorated. He He's talented. Uh, he's well-liked. He's got a long list of clients. And here he is with what Under appeared arrest. to be... <laughs> Under arrest. So, I mean, I, I've got a couple of, I'm just dying to ask you questions because, again, we've never met and and I'm sure that there's a backstory that never got published. Like, as a guide, how did they solicit you? How did that all come about? How did, they, how did the whole thing start? Uh, you just reminded me when you mentioned the New York Times, someone found out that you could you could purchase the negative of the front page of the Wall Street Journal. This is kind of the, uh, in, in recording, it used to be called the acetate, but it's before it goes to print. And this story was on the front page of the Wall Street Journal with an artist's rendering. And they actually bought this and sent it to me. This, yeah. this front page of the Wall Street Journal covering this crazy story. So, yeah. Um, well, uh, this was just to maybe give you the time frame and the timing. Um, it was during that period that I mentioned earlier when I was making my transition away from being a dependent guide and working towards becoming an independent guide. So I was beginning to accumulate my own clientele and, and bookings were brisk. And, I, it, you know, um, Maine, it, it, I mentioned earlier, the, the biggest small community in the world, and most towns in Maine are population less than 4,000. And there may be things like um, petty jealousies, um, uh, that's speculative, but there, some kind of a rumor, this is, believe me, after a lot of reflection um, at the time, Follow at, in the years following this event, there seemed to have been some kind of a of a, a storyline or a, a rumor that here was this um, this outlaw guide, and it it was this this poacher this outlaw guide rumor got going, and I'm not sure how it got going, but I do know that almost any rumor can get legs in a in a town like that in Maine in no time. And so the velocity with which this rumor got going was just breathtaking. And uh, again, this is we have the benefit of hindsight now and knowing, you know, how it came down. So the advisory council member it, all the regions in Maine, this is Region C we're talking about, have advisory council members that are kind of a liaison between the, the local uh, fishery and, and the sport and, and the Department of Inland Fisheries and Wildlife back in Augusta. And that advisory council member got wind of this story and began to hear from people and listen to this. And, and at that time, we had a, a, a local kid, a new, a new game warden. Um, it, it had been difficult to keep a game warden for very long in that area for a, a number of years. We had gone through several game wardens in as many years. And they, they found someone who actually grew up in the area and the chances are better that that person is going to stay there when that's the case. And so he was the warden of note 
on the case, but of course he had a lieutenant above him, and then he had the advisory council member, and he was basically doing what he was told, doing their bidding, and this advisory council member took this uh, story, this this <laughs> this hearsay, and amazingly followed through with it, and it, it, there was never uh, a question of putting on the brakes and looking into this further, seeing if there might be any validity to it and any evidence at all, and there wasn't. And it, it's amazing that it did get as far as it did, but it, it got to the point of the warden service back in Augusta actually sending out an undercover game warden to do a sting yeah, so uh, someone must have contacted you. You know, you don't walk up to Randy Spencer at, at the at the boat launch in the morning and say, "Hey, will you take me fishing?" Someone must have gone under a guise or whatnot. Right? Is that well, how? It and happened? they knew it, uh, by that time, as I was saying, working on the building my own clientele, they knew not to go through a lodge, and so it wasn't a phone call from a lodge, but it was a phone call from Vermont, a Vermont phone number. And it was a guy who said he managed a ski area in Vermont. And he kept calling over a period of, I would say, six to eight weeks because I just didn't have any availability. And finally, one of these times that he called, I had two days. And I, I believe it was in July. And so he grabbed those days and we... And we set that up and that we would meet at the uh, the general store in town in the morning. And and so that's that's how it began. Funny, it began his his uh, his pseudonym. It, it was was spelled like the word begin. But it was uh, French. And it, so it was Begin, Al Begin. Al Begin. Yeah, no, I have a friend named Chris Be Begin is the way he pronounces it. But. Uh -huh. Uh, so did, did you get paid for your two days of guiding? I did and tipped. Yeah. Right. And, and tipped <laughs> and tipped rather well. And, and he caught in two days. I know he caught well over a hundred smallmouth bass. Uh, and you know, we, in that time, ate three fish. And so right. here, uh, and here, here's a good place to, to mention that again, if anyone had, bothered to put the brakes on and, and look. It was a classic misreading of the times and the clientele. If I were to comb through my client list, I'm sure that you would tell me the same thing, Michael, as would almost any guide nowadays. You couldn't come up with somebody who would allow you to poach and break the law the way that they were no you, you couldn't do it i mean there's nobody no. who's interested in fishing that way or doing that and 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 that's been true for the longest time and so it was as if they were acting like it was the 1940s or the 1950s or something like like that because uh at the end of the two days with this undercover agent he asked me if we could fill up a cooler with fish and set it off on an island and come back and get it later. Like, where, who, who's to know? And, and I can tell you honestly, that is the only time in my guiding career that I've ever been asked such a question, and it was by a game warden. Yeah, they were trying to, they were trying to push for more is what they were doing. Yeah, so it was a it was it was an eighteen month ordeal, uh, two trials. During that time, um, my first grandchild was born. My wife's mother died of colon cancer, and my father died of heart of congestive heart failure. During that period, the cost to me to defend myself was $28,000. Yeah. 
and the cost and, and you know we, the the warden service you know was the public option the third payer option so the taxpayer so anytime uh, uh, the warden service had to show up in in court they're paid to do so and uh, a lot of times i think that when charges like this are brought against someone it it's almost a given that that, that, that someone isn't going to be able to afford to take the time out from their work or to be able to meet an expense like that to defend yourself. But it, it was the, uh, the principal involved. And here again, the value of having your own clientele. It was that clientele who did know me and did know my practices and my ethics who raised most of that money. So really interesting, Randy. What At the end of the day, how did they approach you with a violation and what were they attempting to charge you with? Well, they were originally trying to show that this storyline about this outlaw guide was true. And so in the process of this undercover agent catching well over 100 fish, and we ate three of them, uh, the legal limit per licensed fisherman in those days was two. It's now one smallmouth bass on those bodies of water. But at that time, it was two per licensed fisherman and of a certain size and size limit. And in that time of the summer, uh, a guide many times will fish in order to create commotion around the canoe. As you know, smallmouth are like any bass species, even striped bass, they respond to turmoil, noise, trouble, as, as if it might be a feeding frenzy. And more and more bass come to see what this commotion is. And so I will sometimes fish with something like a devil horse or a jitterbug and just skim it through the water really fast and create splashing and noise and in that process, pick up a fish here and there. Well, I did that, kept one of them. That day he had kept his, his two uh, fish that he was allowed to keep, and so we ate three fish. The other day we didn't eat any fish. Well, uh, he came back with, I wanna say, egg on his face. I mean, there was no there there, and he ended up saying, under pressure that that the third i allowed him to take a third fish which had not been the case but that's what he said but he recanted in the second trial in in the end he was our best witness i think that it turned out that he was retiring and this was his last case and okay he turned out to be our best witness in the second trial and my full exoneration came after him telling the judge that that fish really didn't exist. The judge uh, was asking him, well, what happened to this fish? And he said, well, I ate it. And it, it, yeah, it, well, it, so it's, it's, it, if it sounds like a fiasco, it's because it was. And again, just going forward, we, you know, we need to all be on the same side. We don't want a warden service that has an us against them culture. This was a dark period in the main warden service. It's been written about widely. It, it's been written about in two of Paul Dwarian's books and extensively in other venues. It was a, a big blemish of that and other things that happened during the same time period and there's no need to go into names or anything, but we just hope that we uh, learned a lot from that and grown from that and that it and that that culture has changed so that if there were ever such a thing coming up again we would put the brakes on and examine it more completely and and make sure we weren't going on a wild goose chase well i can say based on my observation that the, the, the case failed on a lot of levels because, uh, A, they weren't able to prove uh, any legal action against you, and B, your, uh, your reputation has flourished. You're widely regarded and highly regarded in our community. And uh, it's you. a testimony to the people that did stand up to your side and say, 
Uh, that's not the Randy Spencer that we know and hire, and uh, sounds like you came out of it smelling like a rose. Um, Randy, you you know, being such an experienced guide now, one thing that I'm always interested to talk about, and if there's any other guides that are going to join the audience, I'm sure they would be interested to know, what is the night before like for Randy Spencer on it when a guided trip is about to happen? How What's your pre-trip planning like? It's doing everything exactly the same way every night. Let's hear it. Give me, give me your list, and then I'm going to have a follow-up question. Well, in becoming an independent guide, um, I had to have a partner, and that partner is Shelly, my wife. Yes. Of, uh, of all these years, and now she is the outfitter, and she's the baker, and she's the shopper. And so she puts together the shore lunches, and there's a whole list of Shelly's menu offerings on the website. And they, the sports choose from that Shelly's Kitchen, it's called. They choose their off- mm-hmm. her, one of her offerings, like Stout Stew or um, Shelly's Fabulous Fish Cakes and so on. Um, and she puts that basket together. So... And how many small how many smallmouth bass do you have to kill to make a a, a fish cake, Randy? <laughs> we don't use small we don't use smallmouth bass. I, I hear you. No, I hear you. Um, but I, I will say the price of you know cod and haddock is really really soared. But anyway, so it's a team effort. Uh, while I'm doing the breakdown from the, the that day of guiding, which means you know drying out the the runner carpet in the Grand Laker canoe, sponging out the water if there is any, um, getting the, the fly rods together, the tackle together, um, uh, replenishing the gas tank, oil, and so on. And she's doing the basket. And then it's the same thing, as long as you don't vary, because if you added up all the items that there are to remember, it is mind-numbing. And the only way to, to get that right is to do this same protocol every night and every morning. And then you've, you pretty much are going to be out there with the things you need. It's so easy to forget anything. It's, that it, I'm the same way. I, I keep, it ver- keep it simple, stupid, as they say. And I've learned over time that if you try to get fancy, you forget the chopsticks or you forget... Uh, the the special dish you needed to cook the certain thing in and it's so much easier for me what's your so out of the meals that 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 shelly cooks what's your personal favorite it's either shelly's fabulous fish cake fish cakes or um fried chicken shelly grew up in annapolis maryland and learned how to make southern fried chicken with buttermilk and it just uh when people have her fried chicken that's what they order the following year. I, I love fried chicken, and I think if I get to the opportunity to come over and fish with you this summer, which I would like to to uh, put out a trip trade with you if you're interested, uh, that may be exactly what I order. The fish um, is, by the way, the fish is rarely an entree. If if a fish or two is kept, it's it's an hors d'oeuvre before the entree. So we, most of us guides, are cooking a four course meal over an open fire every day and the fish is is just an hors d'oeuvre so to walk you through it you have pickles and cheese a fish hors d'oeuvre an entree a baked dessert with guides coffee put me in coach that sounds fantastic i was trying to figure out how you know people talk about a fish fry well i mean i've been on days where you don't catch a fish in the morning just because that happens periodically due to the you know factors you can't control but you just answered the question that the, 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 the fish, if it is going to happen, is really just an appetizer. Right. And you have at least as many catch-and-release fishermen nowadays as you do uh, anglers who would like to keep a fish to eat or keep a couple of fish and make a chowder. Now, you mentioned um, how many smallmouth bass does it take to make fish cakes. Well, smallmouth bass, white perch, almost any fish can can make a fish chowder and make a good one. So sometimes fish chowder is is an, an added uh, entree or an hors d'oeuvre. So that's another reason someone might elect to keep a couple of fish within the law. 
Yeah, and you know, something that's very different in the state, uh, at least for me, is, you know, in Grand Lake Stream, you have really clear water and it's not industrialized. It never has been, um, other than maybe a tannery back in the day or something like that. But we can't eat the smallmouth bass in the rivers of the Androscoggin and the Kennebec. Uh, so no one would even begin the conversation about killing and eating a bass on the waters that I guide. Yeah, there, just, uh, just a note on our clear waters, there are locals who still drink that water right out of the lake. That's and, fantastic. You're lucky to be able to say that, Randy. And wow, they live a long time. <laughs> At any given time in Grand Lake Stream, you can, you can talk to a lot of people way up in their 90s. Yes, yeah, it's a clean living. So um, I'm going to ask you probably one of the hardest questions, Randy. Uh, if you had one day left to fish in Maine, where would you go and who would you take with you? Oh, not difficult question at all. I would go, of course, my, my camp is on West Grand Lake, and I would go to West Grand Lake with my son and my grandson. My grandson is now six years old, already fishing, already able to cast a fly line. And already ice fishing as well, so I would I would want my son and my grandson there. That's a great answer. I really appreciate that, Randy. Something I know that um, I know that you it's it makes your heart go pitter pat. Is uh, let's talk about your work with the Passamaquoddy uh, History and Preservation Office. Tell me about some of the work that you're doing with them and some of the projects that you have done and you're working with. Well, that started with um, the officer who's in charge of history and preservation. Uh, with the tribe, that's Donald Saktoma, um, a great author in his own right, by the way, but also uh, a visionary and a, a, a grant writer, bar none. And so he was able to write grants and receive funds for projects that would uh, enhance and embrace the Passamaquoddy history, history and culture. Well, to do that, uh, he wanted to record their traditional music. That was one project. And so we ended up recording three albums, one of them with school children uh, doing native music. And one of them was uh, featuring um, Blanche Soccer Basin and Wayne Newell, both of whom played at the Kennedy Center in Washington, D.C. Uh, these, wow. these tapes and the other projects we did, two, two documentary films, um, one of them on the super fun site that uh, unearthed artifacts dating back 9,000 years. That's, I think that's in Medibems, is it not? That, that's right, Medibems. Yeah. And yeah. those uh, artifacts lived... Uh, in the in the bar, in the museum in Bar Harbor, before going to the Museum of Indian History in Washington D.C., uh, so those were those were fun projects as well. Uh, but then something that the tribe has always done, and this goes back to Thomas Edison and wax cylinder tapes, is to record the elders late in life, basically telling their life stories, and in this way. They accumulated their oral history, and this was passed down generation after generation. And my job uh, from this particular batch of grants was to take these tapes on, and, and I had some very, very old tape decks to be even able to play these tapes and then run them through you know, modern filtering systems and software that cleaned up the, the transient glitches and, and the, the white noise in the background. And in many cases, when I returned these tapes to the tribe, it was the first time they were actually able to hear them. So I've so far uh, digitized 120 hours of these interviews with Passamaquoddy elders, and those tapes have gone to the Museum of Indian History. Are they accessible to the public? I think at that museum, they're accessible to the public. Yeah, it's unfortunate in this day and age. Wouldn't it be wonderful to just download um, an hour uh, that you could you could listen to? I'm sure at some point they'll they'll probably try to take on that level of technology. But 
that's great that you were able to work on that. And you were naturally using your, your production background, I'm assuming. Right. And my recording studio. And, you know, uh, it, it was hard not to be doing that work, but not stop and listen and be amazed at what you were hearing. For example, there were stories from veterans, veterans of World War II and the Korean War, Passamaquoddy tribal veterans who fought for their country, in many cases were grievously wounded, came back to Indian Township and were unable to vote for president in this country. Maine and Utah were the last two states to grant suffrage to Native Americans. And that was in 1953. And even to this day, they're kind of viewed as outliers to the remainder of the national tribes. And there's a lot of there's a lot of work going on to get them the, the true recognition right across the nation as they right. deserve. Yeah, it's great work you're doing there, Randy. That's awesome. Um, I am just tickled to have had you on the podcast, Randy. I mean, everyone knows you. Everyone loves you. I only wish that we had met before, and I'm going to make a point to try to meet you this summer if uh, you're willing, and, and what we'll do is we'll we'll try to set up a date. But I'm hoping that after all this, you know, this interview that we had, that, that, that our, our listeners are catter, caterwauling and screaming and shouting. <laughs> That's, that was your quote from earlier. I love the term caterwauling. What is caterwauling? Yeah, it's the same as those other words you just mentioned. Screaming and shouting. I never heard it. I learn something every day. That's what life is for. But Randy, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you and so much. It means, yeah, absolutely. And that's what this podcast is about, is about getting people together and, and familiarizing uh, a broader audience with who these unique and, and uh, interesting people are that add to the community that we all love and share. Well, I love the work you're doing, and it's been really nice to meet you. Thank you very much, Randy. Take care. That brings us to the end of this episode. Thank you for joining us for this intimate discussion, and thank you for listening to Flyline Podcast. A new Flyline Podcast episode will be released every two weeks on Tuesdays, so be sure to come back to meet our next famous guest. Until then, this is Michael Jones. Flyline Podcast is a product of Riverside FM. morning you know I was feeling all right stepped outside for a dose of daylight I thought it was blind I could not see the sky Lord have mercy it was those old black flies black flies in your hair and in your eyes black flies in them old north woods don't you be surprised when you meet those devils in disguise I slept and I swatted and I started to run Lost so much blood I thought I was done Put on some off, some Raiden 612 Those black flies loved it and took me straight to hell Black flies In your hair and in your eyes Black flies In them old north woods Don't you be surprised When you meet those devils in disguise Now listen here, people, I ain't gonna tell you no lie There ain't nothing worse than a damn black fly Behind the knee, even on your thigh Nothing sacred to an old black fly Black flies In your hair and in your eyes Black flies In them old north woods Don't you be surprised when you meet those devils in disguise This song in a place called Grand Lake Stream, Maine. The black flies in Grand Lake Stream, Maine, eat bull moose for breakfast. 
They use Route 1 to take off on. I've seen them do that. One fella actually told me he was a black lie taxidermist. When I was there, they were having the worst black fly outbreak they'd had in 25 years. Me being the only outer stater in the area, they blamed it all on me. So I wrote this song called Black Flies, and every time we do it, no matter where we do it, I always dedicate this last verse to Delmar Gahagan, to Nigel Dumpster, to Earl Woodcock, to the people of Grand Lake Stream, Maine, to anybody that's ever been bitten by a black fly. Now I'd rather eat worms, marry a hog, share my bed with a mangy old dog. Jungle rot, a good case of the hives. It's a whole lot better than being eaten alive. Black flies in your hair and in your eyes. Black flies in them old north woods. Don't you be surprised when you meet those devils in disguise.